0: All right. If you want to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, that's what we're going to be studying today. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some we would love to share with you. So go ahead and raise your hand up, and uh, we would love to bring that to your chair. We also have some note sheets there if that'll be helpful to you with pencils so you can take some notes down, jot uh, some ideas down that uh, perhaps stand out to you in the course of the preaching today. So these gentlemen will be happy to supply your needs. Uh, I've got to take my name tab- tag off. I- I'm glad we started this up for a little while. We're a little bit uh, torn on the name tags, because usually when you use a name tag, it's because you're around people you don't know, and we want to be the kind of church where people know each other. So we want people to know each other's names and not have to look at a name tag all the time, but as the Lord grows us and we've got a lot of new faces, uh, this is going to be helpful to us to hopefully grab on to some of that information so that we can store it in our hearts and and we won't be strangers to one another. So for a little bit, we're going to wear these name tags and and, uh, and eventually, hopefully, we won't need them anymore. Um, But the Lord is the one who's sovereign over our growth, as we're going to learn today. So um, as long as he's bringing new people here, we're going to rejoice in that and uh, and be thankful for these new people that we get to know and that we get to draw near to. So our text today in 1 Corinthians 14 is going to answer a, a few questions for us. The Apostle Paul is going to seek to answer the question, what were tongues supposed to be for? Why would God give the gift of tongues to people? And were the Corinthians in the church there in Corinth using them the way that they were supposed to be used? Um, my grandparents were a very important part of my life growing up. A lot of you know that. And uh, we're going to talk a bit about maturity today. And without a doubt, my grandpa and my grandma were instrumental in helping me to grow in maturity. They set a standard for me. I learned so much about what it meant to follow the Lord by watching them follow the Lord. So they played a huge part, not only in me becoming a Christian, giving my life to Christ, but also my, me becoming a, a man, maturing as, as, as a person who thinks carefully about life and is responsible and trustworthy. So when I was 10, uh, my grandparents retired. And to my sadness, they moved. They moved back to Arkansas, which is where my grandfather is originally from. And that was hard, being quite a bit away from them. And so I tried to travel back there to visit with them as much as I could, which was only every so often. But after a few years, this amazing thing was invented called the Internet, right? And the Internet provided this brand new channel, different ways for me to stay connected with my grandparents. And so my aunt um, was a little bit ahead of the curve. She started to rally her brothers and sisters, all my grandma and grandpa's children, and said, we need to get them a computer. we got to get them on email. we got to do what we can to try to keep uh, mom and dad connected to everybody wherever they're at in the country. And so they bought them at this time. It was a pretty expensive computer. I'm sure it was probably around $1,500 or so. And it it was a noble plan. I mean, best of intentions on the part of my aunt. I don't remember ever getting a single email from my grandma and grandpa. Uh, I never got a single Facebook message when Facebook became a thing, even though they tried to train them to do that. I do remember flying to Arkansas to visit one time, and I remember that they had no idea how to use the internet or how to log onto it, but they had discovered that you can play solitaire on a computer. And man, what a convenience that was, right? Because you don't have to lay the cards out. I mean... You can come back to it later and don't have to worry about your cards being all mixed up. They love that $1,500 Solitaire machine that they got. (laughs) It was intended to be a machine to communicate and to keep people connected, but for them, it just never, never became that for them. As the Great Commission has defined what the church is supposed to be accomplishing, it is helpful and it is right for us to think about the gifts that God has given to us in terms of what did God intend these gifts for? What is he trying to accomplish by giving us these gifts? These gifts like service and faith and tongues and and hospitality. Why did he give these things to the church? And what is he trying to, to accomplish? If we take that approach, then it'll be much easier to respond in a worshipful way when God tells us what not to do and what to do when it comes to the exercise of these particular gifts. So if you've got 1 Corinthians, open to chapter 14, um, we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 25 today. So uh, read along as I read out loud verses 20 through 25 of First Corinthians 14. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say to you that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Let's bow in a quick word of prayer. Father, prepare our hearts to think carefully about these things. We don't want to stay infants in the way that we think. We want to think like mature individuals, like people who have been completed, Uh, through the work of your Spirit. So help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear what your text is proclaiming today, Lord God. Father, we want to be the kind of congregation where somebody who comes into this place and somebody wants to experience what it's like to worship like a Christian, that they will come and hear the prophetic word proclaimed, that they will hear the truth that your scripture contains, and that that word will have an impact on their lives, God. We pray that even today, if there's someone here that needs to hear the gospel of truth, that your Holy Spirit would be doing what we cannot do. Let us proclaim it in truth and let your Holy Spirit awaken the heart that is asleep. We praise you, Father, for the opportunity to be impacted by this ourselves. Even those of us who have been Christians for decades need to hear these things and need to grow in them. Uh, Many things that we have taught, we've we've forgotten, Lord God, and need to be reminded of. Many things we've taught and we've been taught in part, and we need to see a, a more fuller explanation of what your word is explaining to us. So I pray, Lord God, that you would keep me humble as I approach the task of proclaiming your word to the world. And Father, may we as a church in unison say amen to the things you say are true and good. We love you and thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The topic of what Paul refers to as outsiders was broached in last week's passage. You might recall in verses 16 and 17 of this same chapter. Uh, Paul said, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? Who's he talking about there? He's talking about those who are not a, a regular part of the body of Christ. Those who are coming to a worship service, but they're coming exploring what that service has to offer. They're not yet connected to the body of Christ, but they want to hear what this Jesus is about The goal there is to hope that eventually in time, maybe it doesn't happen that week, maybe it happens after several visits and many sessions of counseling and discussing and conversation, the hope is that eventually that person who's an outsider will begin to say amen to the things that they hear preached from the Word of God. So Paul is urging us to be considerate of the impact that our behavior has on those who do not yet know Christ as their Lord and Savior. The Christian is not called to pull away and never interact with those who don't think like them, with those who don't believe what they believe. We don't have that luxury as God's church. And in the council culture that we live in today, that's becoming even more and more important because the church needs to stand out as different in that regard. We live in a culture right now where there is one line of thinking that is proclaimed from all the media outlets, that is propagated upon us by various sources, And if you don't think the way of the mainstream, if you don't have that liberal mindset, then you're often just silenced. People don't want to hear what you have to say. They're threatened by your alternate ideas, your ways of looking at the world, and so they just cut you out. But as Christians, we need to show the world what it means to truly be open-minded, which is to think clearly about every aspect of culture that we are involved in, and to let the Lord God and the things that he's revealed to us impact the way we think about those things. And so we need to be engaging our culture. We cannot afford to run away and shelter up. We've got to be discussing things with people that don't think like us. We've got to be interacting with them. We've got to be willing to pray for them and for their hearts that God would work in and through them. The church is a people on mission. So they have no choice but to purposefully interact with those who do not think the way they think. And their interactions with people who do not believe the way they believe should have a goal. It shouldn't just be interaction for the sake of interaction. It, just, it shouldn't be interaction just for the sake of being nice. There's something much more eternal at stake here. And the goal is summed up beautifully in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, verse 16, where Jesus himself is preaching. He says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, what Jesus is preaching there is that we are to live the life of a Christian. We're not to live it secretly. We're not to live it off to the side in our own little subculture. We're to live it loudly. We're to live a life of worship to the Lord and that the light that Christ has put into us might shine into the world, not so that they would glorify us or our good deeds or call us good citizens, but that they might see our life live to the glory of God and say, what a God he serves. What a God she praises, that their attention might be drawn heavenward. And so that is the goal of these interactions that we have with those who think so differently than us, that by engaging with them, that they might begin to see what Christ has done to change us, and that that light might begin to open their eyes. So the term outsider might feel a little high and mighty to some. It might seem like a strange term to use, but it's a necessary distinction. Paul doesn't speak that way to boast about himself, like, look at us, we're the insiders. And whenever you read about uh, the, the wonder of election, he never talks about it as if we are high and mighty because we are the, the called of God and the rest of the world can just go kick rocks. No, he's always talking about it in a wonderful way, like, why us? Like, it's, it's amazing that God would choose sinners like us to come alongside him and to proclaim his goodness into the world. And so there's a humility to this being inside the covenant. It's a necessary distinction because God is a covenantal God and and our relationship with Him is a covenantal matter. You are either in this covenant of grace which Christ has ushered in in this this new, New Testament era or you're not in that covenant. And that makes a humongous difference in regards to how you interact with God. So by outsider, Paul means that Those who are outside the new covenant in Christ's blood. That's what he's talking about when he talks about outsiders. They're not yet adopted in. They are not yet heirs of the things of heaven. They are not yet committed mind, body, soul, and spirit to the Lord. They're not yet joined to this spiritual body that we call the church. Now, They may not remain outsiders forever. And in fact, the desire to see them one day come to faith in Jesus Christ is fuel for our interaction with the world. That's why we go out into the world and interact and care for them and meet their needs and profess Christ to them. And it needed to also be a great concern to these Corinthians, right? However, though these visitors were outside the covenant, we cannot deny that these outsiders are associated with the church in some way. They they were coming in and visiting. They were showing up at the services on Sunday mornings. And so when you have an outsider interacting with the church, they might come in just off the street. I saw your sign. I've been curious and I came in. Or maybe I went to church for a while and haven't been for years and years, but something made me want to come back to church. And so I went and visited your church. Or maybe they came and they got some food on a Saturday morning. That was such a blessing to them. They, they saw the, the smiles of the people who warmly greeted them and said, I want to see what this fellowship is all about. I want to be around you people some more. So they came on a Saturday, on Sunday and now they're visiting. They're curious. They want to know more about who we are. They could be seeking to understand the gospel. They might be intellectually trying to make sense of what the Bible says. And so they come to hear some preaching to try to hear from a Christian perspective who Christ is and what he's all about. But they're yet... They're, they're yet to trust him. They're not ready to say that that Jesus is Messiah and I believe in him and, and, and that's my king. But they're here exploring that idea. They're, they're mulling it over. They're, they're chewing on doctrine. They're trying to figure out what they believe. Well, they could be the children of members who are sitting here with us right now, not yet regenerated, but under the, the graceful umbrella of their parents who love the Lord. And so they've got to make a decision to follow Christ one day, and we pray that every one of them will. Their lives will be to the glory of God. But in the meantime, they're not yet truly a part of the body of Christ because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They're not yet regenerate. So there are these individuals who are always to be among us who are not yet part of that body, but they are associated to the body of Christ. So far, Paul has been primarily concerned with how the church is operating In the gathering of the saints. In other words, what we've been reading in the last few chapters that we've been talking about these spiritual gifts is Paul wants us to know how these gifts impact the body of Christ together. They're meant to edify, right? They were meant to build up the people of Christ that the people of Christ might grow stronger in their faith, in their love for one another, and and most importantly, in their love for the Lord God. But this phenomenon of ecstatic speaking in tongues has the potential to impact those who are not yet a part of the body as well. And so Paul's going to address that in the verses that we're meditating on this morning. So Paul transitions into this discussion in verse 20 with an appeal to reason and an appeal to maturity. So attitude and thought. So in verse 20 he says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature." Now, maturity is something that believers should strive for. There's no doubt about that. Paul has gone to great lengths to encourage the edification or the building up or the maturing of the body of the saints. But he ironically points out that there are some things that we should remain immature about. I think he grabs their attention with this play on words. Namely, we should be immature about evil practices that are so commonplace in the lost world. Be infants in evil. So think about it. There are certain qualities that children have that are commendable, that are worth imitating. Our Lord Jesus even told us that we are to have faith like a child, right? A child has faith. They don't have blind faith. They have faith based off of the love that they receive from the people around them. So my children believe what I have to say, by and large, because mom and I love the kids. We care for them. And so they're going to respond to me a lot more positively and quickly than they might respond to a total stranger. They have faith. They don't have to understand everything that mom and I say. They trust and they go on it because we have a relationship with them. So we're called to have faith like a child, like that, that we're supposed to understand that God knows more than we do. And there are times when He beckons us to go forward and He doesn't bother to give us a full explanation. It's just, this is what the Lord says, so you need to do it. You're in my family. I'm your father. You're my child. So we're called to have faith like children. Uh, We're called to possess a, a relative degree of innocence like children have now there is no such thing as an innocent human being there was one that was jesus christ and he gave his life on the cross and rose again but the rest of us are born with the curse of adam so no matter how little or big you are the the curse of sin is real in your life but there's no doubt that when little children are running around here at church they have not had the opportunity to sin as, as much as you have most of you right So those little kids are relative to you. They are more innocent than you are. They're not exposed to sin. They have not let it become such an integrated uh, practical part of their life as most adults have. And so we are to have a relative degree of innocence. We're to have a a type of naivete to sin. Not that we're oblivious to it, but that we don't want to know what it's like to go out and to get drunk. We don't want to know what it's like to go out and to engage in immoral revelries. We don't want to do those kinds of things. We don't want to know what it's like to to deceive and to con. We we want to be honest. We We want to be experienced in the things of righteousness, and we want to be infants when it comes to wickedness. Children have a greater capacity to be led as well. And as Christians, that's a vital part of what it means to have a heart for Christ, a willingness for God to lead us forward. Now, there's a subtle reason, I think, that Paul chooses to use this illustration to call believers to be kind of like infants in a way. I think this is engaging with the whole idea of of speaking in tongues. This passage of scripture couldn't come at a more practical time for Missy and myself because one member of the Neves family has really been struggling with speaking in tongues lately and that is Rosie Neves because she often just talks and talks and talks but very few words that come out of her mouth are anything close to something we can understand right she i think knows what's going on her head she she knows what she's trying to communicate but to us we're like where's an interpreter right we're trying to be biblical about this what is this little girl trying to say and sometimes it's a little brother comes along and says no dad what she really needs is another cracker right that's that's what she's asking for and so there's a certain amount of discernment we're trying to gain with her little kids especially little little kids they often just speak to hear their own voice And those words often don't mean much of anything at all. And so I think by saying there are some things that you should be infantile in, like wickedness, Paul is also subtly saying, but don't be like a little child who runs around, blah, 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 but doesn't really communicate anything by their words. They don't have the capacity yet to share an idea, an articulate thought with their words. In your speech, don't be like children, but in regards to evil, be like children. Be inexperienced, be uninitiated. But in your thinking now, he's going to contrast this. He says, in your thinking, in the way that you process through things, in the way that you intellectually deal with your emotions, that's part of your thinking too. Be mature. Be mature. Don't just act without thinking about it. Take responsibility for the way that you, you behave. Know that your words, the words that you put forth in the world... They need to be well thought out because they can have an impact on others as well. The scripture tells us that not all the commands that God gives carry the same weight. Some of them are more important than others. We know that because Jesus was asked in his earthly ministry, what is the greatest command? That's a a word of value, right? That means that some commands are better than others. And Jesus was quick to respond. He wasn't puzzled by that question. In fact, no devout Jew would have been puzzled by that question. He knew the answer. All the other commands are founded on the one greatest command. And the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. So the Apostle Paul is pressing us to love our God in this holistic way, in this complete way. Not to have a faith that is emotionally driven, that is strictly practical, which is only about ethics and do this and don't do that, He doesn't want us to have a faith that is nothing more than a means to get blessings from him. No, our faith is an exercise primarily and holistically in loving God. And we're to use every facet of our capabilities to accomplish that, to love the Lord God. So this goes hand in hand with, uh, I will pray with my spirit, which Paul said last week, right? But I'll also pray with my mind. You remember that? Now, he said some of these Corinthians, they claimed to be praying in the spirit and they were saying all these things, but nobody could understand and it was disrupting the worship services. And he says, I'm going to pray in my spirit, but I'm also going to pray with my mind. I'm going to pray in a way that I can think through these things and understand what is being being brought up in my mind and my heart. He says, I will sing with my spirit, but I'll also sing with my mind. So Paul wants these Corinthians to begin to engage their mind more. He wants them to think carefully about the effect that their actions will have. Now, one mark of maturity of of a grown mind is the capacity and the discipline to think not only about the immediate situation that you're dealing with, but the ramifications that will flow out of it. Not just primary consequences, but secondary consequences and and tertiary consequences. How will my decision right now affect not just the next move, but how will it have a long-term impact on me and on others? So if I behave in this way, I might think to myself, if I behave in this way, it might not cause serious problems that I can see right away, but it could have a negative impact down the road. Might it eventually prove to be detrimental to me? Might it be a hindrance to others? It might not hurt me in ways that are immediately apparent, but how might it affect the people that are near to me? Those who are weak in the faith, those who are being exposed to the gospel for the first time, but don't yet have a saving faith in Christ. See, that's a mature way of thinking about our actions and our decisions. Not only, what will this do right here in this moment, but how is this going to ripple effect and impact the others around me and the people that I've been called to love? Those are questions that a mature mind thinks about. To move the argument forward, Paul draws our attention to an Old Testament passage. In Isaiah 28, verses 11 through 13, a couple weeks ago, we considered the implications of this prophecy. We're not going to go into it in too depth here. I just to quickly recap, God gave the law, gave the truth to the Jews, His chosen people. He proclaimed, this is how you're to live in covenant with me, and if you do it, there will be blessings that come with it. If you don't live according to these laws, if you ignore these things and don't treat me like God, then here are the things that are going to fall out from that. Here are the ramifications, the, the consequences. And so He gave that law to this specific people, Israel, and yet they would have listened to it. They rejected the word of the prophets. They... Treated the scripture as if it was a little thing, like they didn't really need it in their lives. And because they ignored the word of God, again and again, great hurt came upon the nation of Israel. So Isaiah comes and he prophesies that there would be a day when the word of God would be spoken. Since these Hebrews were listening to the word of God spoken in Hebrew, but they were ignoring it, there would be a day coming when the word of God, the prophetic utterance of the Lord, would go out into the world in a language that was not Hebrew, in languages that were completely foreign to these, the chosen people of God. And that would hurt the heart of the Israelites. It would sting them. God would use that to help them to see how wicked they had been in turning away from the word of the Lord. And for some, it would cause them to go back to it. It would cause them to have a remorseful repentance. And they would once again embrace the scriptures. They would die back into the law and see how Christ the Messiah was the fulfillment of that law. The gospel would be preached widely. The Holy Spirit would save many through that gospel, not just genetic Israel, but true Israel, those who would spiritually connect themselves to this history of salvation and redemption. And they would find that the DNA of a true believer is not in the blood, it's in the faith. It's in the heart of those who call upon the name of the Savior that God has sent. So Isaiah 28, 11 through 13 says, For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. So when he says this people, he means to stubborn Israel, to Israel who's not been paying attention at all. So he's going to speak to them, but it won't be in Hebrew. It'll be through the languages of foreigners who they thought could not be loved by God. Verse 12, to whom he has said, this, this is rest. Give rest to the weary, and this is repose. And yet they, again speaking of stubborn Israel, they would not hear. And this prophecy played out in Jesus' day. Before his eyes, and before the eyes of the early church, the scripture is proclaimed, John the Baptist preaches it and proclaims it, Jesus Christ himself preaches it and proclaims it, and by and large, much of Israel said, nope, don't believe it. I don't think this is really the Messiah. We're just going to keep going about our lives and doing our thing and being our religious selves. But they did not hear the fulfillment of prophecy in the preaching of John the Baptist and Jesus and then later through the apostles. At Pentecost, God allowed the languages of foreigners to be spoken by his apostles so that the message of messianic hope might go forth. And many Jews who were in Jerusalem at that time witnessed that proclamation some of them, I said, like I said before, were convicted of heart, and they said, whoa, this is Isaiah 28 coming to pass. They were, they were pricked to the heart, they turned from their sin, and thousands were added to the church in those early days. But even more than that were not added to the church. Even more than that heard that prophetic utterance, they heard the speaking in tongues, and they said, these guys have got to be drunk. It's not even the ninth hour of the day, and they're, they're, they're acting like crazy people around here. They, they, they would not believe. So the Pentecostal expression of tongues was not for national Israel. Those who were under the covenantal boundaries of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Mosaic law, it was for those who needed to hear the gospel in their native tongue and did not speak Hebrew. The Holy Spirit enabled those initially Jewish apostles to speak in their languages so that the gospel could go out into the world. That's why verse 22 of our passage today in Romans, or 1 Corinthians 14 says, Thus tongues are assigned not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is assigned not for unbelievers, but for believers. So verse 22 is in direct opposition to the beliefs of the Corinthians concerning the ecstatic tongue usage that they, they had going on in Corinth. They thought the gift of tongues were assigned for believers. How? They thought it was a sign of their true spiritual connection to God. A sign that affirmed their own spiritual maturity. If I speak in tongues that no one else can understand, that must mean that God's hand is upon my life because he's speaking to me in ways that nobody else can know. They thought it was a sign of maturity, like an affirmation of the fact that they were truly saved. In reality, it was a sign that said, look at me. I'm connected to God in such a powerfully supernatural way that I can speak in this unknown spiritual language and no one can understand it, not even me. I truly must have a connection to God if I'm compelled to behave in this way. But that's not what the tongues gift was supposed to accomplish. Paul is making it clear here. The tongues are not for believers. It's not a sign to affirm belief. It's a sign for those who have yet to believe. It was a means by which the gospel could go to the heart that had yet to say Jesus Christ is my Lord. I repent in dust and ashes, and I trust only in him. The gift of tongues was for the outsider. It was a supernatural means of communicating to them them in a natural language that they could understand so that they might hear the truth, be convicted by it in their hearts, and turn from sin towards the gospel. The gift of tongues was supposed to be a vehicle to reach the outsider and to bring them near. And to show stubborn Israel that they needed to repent too. And in that sense, the question of today's sermon is, is there an evangelistic use for the speaking in tongues? And in that sense, yes. When tongues are used like that, it's evangelistic. When the gospel is preached in clarity to those who otherwise would not be able to hear that that language of the Hebrews, that was evangelistic in nature. But the way that the tongues were used in Corinth was not evangelistic in nature Instead of bringing the gospel to those who couldn't understand, it made those who even understood the gospel not be able to understand because those languages had no true meaning behind them. Now here's the difference. Prophecy, also a spiritual gift, the proclamation of the truth of the word, that profession of biblical truth was to be assigned to believers, a means by which they might grow in faith and understand more about God's design for His church. You're experiencing prophecy right now as I'm proclaiming the words of 1 Corinthians 14 to you. Do you want to affirm that you're truly a believer? Do you want to to have evidence of that? Do you want a, a way that you can show others that you're truly reconciled to God, that you're redeemed, and that you've been given a part in the new covenant of grace? Then tongues is not your ticket, prophecy is. Listen to the Word of God prophesied. Listen to the Word preached and taught and shared and counseled. Listen to that clear word, that trustworthy word, and then obey it. With a mature mind, process what you hear and learn and say amen to the things of God instead of saying amen to your own heart. Trust him in his leading. Live your life according to the things that have been prophesied. That is the way that you show others that God has changed you. By obeying the commands of the God who is now your Lord and your King. So verse 22 brings clarity. Tongues are a sign for the unbeliever, not the believer. Prophecy is a sign for the believer, not the unbeliever. And now this comparison that Paul makes is a little bit tricky, and I want to explain why. Sometimes the unbeliever doesn't stay an unbeliever, do they? Sometimes the unbeliever doesn't stay an unbeliever. And to that we say, thank you, Lord, and amen, and we rejoice. A couple of weeks ago we welcomed four new members into the body here at First Family Church. And that's always a beautiful time and we're very blessed that God has brought many new faces and families to our fellowship and there are even more that you're going to be meeting soon in the in the weeks to come that are interested in becoming a part of the church and in joining us and being a part of this body of Christ. Now as part of becoming members of this church, each individual who joins agrees to a four-part church membership covenant and that's a covenant that's really just derived from scripture it's the the new member saying i want to biblically be a part of this church and we want this church to biblically help us to grow and be edified so those four points um, are, are are pretty simple and straightforward this morning i want to look at the second of those four commitments a little bit more in depth because it has to do with what we're learning this morning as we speak about evangelism and what part tongues may or may not play in that The the second of the four commitments is, I will share the responsibility of my church. And what is the responsibility of the church? There are many, uh, but right at the top of the list is obedience and faithfulness to the great commission that Jesus gave to the church just before he ascended and took his place at the right hand of the Father. And so that's found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I'll put the verse on the screen, but most of you know it by heart by now. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's what we call the Great Commission. And it is a crucial and important directive that Jesus gives to his church as he leaves the apostles to continue the work that he trained them to do the conversion and development of souls is to be of prime concern for God's church in the new covenant. And members of first family church embrace that. We respond to that commission with obedience. And the rest of that second commitment outlines how we do that. So we are to share in the responsibility of our church through praying. We pray for its numerical growth and that's in your notes there that's from first timothy 2 verses 1 through 4 first of all then i urge that supplications prayers intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of god our savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth and so where does evangelism begin it doesn't begin in some ecstatic sign it begins in prayer it begins with us getting on our knees and approaching the Lord God with a humble heart and asking that he would continue to save others as he has saved us. We pray that God would grow this church, that he would bring people here that might hear the gospel and respond to it in grace. Now, are the leaders of First Family Church expecting this church to be a megachurch one day? Do we want to grow to thousands? No, that's not really the aim of our prayers. Our prayers is to simply see the will of God unfold how he has designed it to unfold. There are reasons why I don't think it's ideal for a church to be that large. Because to be familial, to have this body connection to one another, I think you can get so big that you don't even know who each other are. That you, that you don't even have an, an understanding of the people that you worship alongside. So how do you pray for their needs? How do you meet their needs? How, how do you understand how God is using them to bless you and how God is using you to bless them? So as a church, our goal is not to be 1,000 members or 5,000 members. Our goal is to see God's will done. If the Lord is to grow us, then we have plans for that. Do we want to stay exactly this size forever? No, that would be selfish for us to say, Lord, we got enough. We're good. That's all we can handle. Okay, Send some believers to other churches. That's That's not the prayer that we pray either. We want God to send people to us to hear this gospel, that they might respond to it in faith, hopefully, prayerfully. And if this church were to grow to a point where we were too big to really handle the proper shepherding of the people, then at that point we would prayerfully begin to make plans to plant another church that's within the geographical scope of where our people live so that we could have two churches doing the same things, uh, but we could be ministering to people in a size that facilitates proper care and concern for the body of Christ. So we pray for this numerical growth. If the Lord grows us to a size we feel is is reasonable, we have plans. We know what we're going to do if that were to happen. But there's more than just prayer that goes into evangelism. We also share in the responsibilities of our church, particularly in this Great Commission, by inviting those who are unchurched to attend church with us, to be a part of these ministries. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Notice the active tense there. He came to seek and save the lost. And the church is to be seeking and saving the lost as the will of the Lord unfolds in their lives. That doesn't mean we just sit here and we worship the Lord God. And if anybody wants to come, they can, but we're not really actively pursuing anyone. No, we should be looking and praying and thinking about people in our lives that God has put in our path that we might be able to engage with them, that we might be able to pursue them for the truth. We don't build the church to be a sideshow attraction that's going to lure people in with fancy presentations and impressive resources and ministries. We don't wait for people to approach us. We approach them in love. We invite them to come and be a part of what God is doing here. Third way that members share in the responsibility of the church is through welcoming, through welcoming those who do visit our services. Romans fifteen seven. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you For the glory of God. And this is important, especially in smaller churches, because with a smaller church, there is this this inherent tendency to get so comfortable with the group you have that anybody coming in from the outside almost has to like get over an impenetrable wall before they feel loved by anybody in that church. Sure, there's lots of smiles along that impenetrable wall on the outside. Hey, we're so glad that you're here. Now go sit with the other new people. Well, I talk to the people I know and I love, right? That's how small churches can sometimes feel. The size of the church doesn't remedy all the problems that churches can have. So as a church, if you're a member of this church, you are committed to not just come here on a Sunday and hang with the 10 people you love the most. That's not good church membership. If you've committed to be a part of this church, then you are here because you want this church to feel like a family. And the way it feels like a family is by you getting up and going over to somebody who might be sitting by themselves. And you sit next to them and you join them where they're at, and you get to know them. It means that you invite them over to your house, that we go beyond just saying, hey, this is great to see you and talk to you for 2.5 minutes every Sunday morning. That's great. No, I want you to come have some food with me. I want you to come, and your kid's gonna play with my kids. Let's get to know each other a little bit so we'll know how to pray for each other better so that we might be able to share what God is going on in our lives. This kind of interaction, this kind of welcoming is crucial to the church becoming what it's supposed to be, which is a true body where we're connected to one another, we serve one another, and we experience this oneness and this filling of the Spirit together as His people. So learn people's names. It's part of the reason we're not going to have these name tags forever. We want you to learn each other's names. We want you to get to know each other's uh, struggles and victories. We want you to miss each other. If somebody doesn't come for a couple weeks, we want people thinking, wow, I haven't seen so-and-so. I, got, I need to reach out to that person and make sure they're okay. I want to make sure that there's not something they need from me right now. So these are, these are steps that we take to make the body of Christ become what it's supposed to be. To that end, we're not only okay with non-believers joining us on Sunday mornings. We're not only just okay with it. We're praying for that to happen. We are asking that as a gift from the Lord. We're actively inviting people to come because the gospel of hope that has saved us has the power to save others like us. Now, returning to the church in in Corinth, they knew that the Great Commission was also their commission. They knew that the gospel would spread in many different ways, and one of those would be through the faithful preaching and worship that happens on the Lord's Day in the morning on Sunday gatherings. But how was the behavior of the saints either helping or hurting the testimony of the gospel of those who came to be a part of those Sunday morning services? Paul shows us that. Because of the ways that they were abusing the gift of tongues, they were seriously hindering the testimony of the gospel in their church. It says in verse 23, we're back again at 1 Corinthians 14, our primary passage this morning. It says, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders and unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? Now, our preaching is so contrary to the way that our culture is going, they might say that we're out of our minds anyway, okay? That's... That's something we're up against, right? Because Christianity is so different than the world we live in today. But think about what Paul's saying here. If they come in and they see everybody just speaking out in tongues, and there's chaos there, nobody really knows what's being said. Won't they think that you're out of your minds? Verse 24. But if all prophecy, and all, and, uh, if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So this is Paul establishing why prophecy takes priority over speaking in tongues because of the effect that it can have on somebody who comes into the congregation for the first time or second time or third time and sees what the people are doing and recognizes that the word of God is being preached here and then the word of God has the impact on the heart. Were the tongues being spoken in the congregation in Corinth being utilized as a sign to believers? As verse 27 says here, they should be. No, they weren't. They were an ecstatic sign of gibberish. They were not true languages that were bringing people to the truth. There was no benefit to the unbeliever because the unbeliever could not understand what was being said. And because the unbeliever had no spiritual framework that might make them think, oh, this is an exceedingly spiritual person. What did they think in Acts chapter 2? They thought they were drunk. They didn't think of that as a sign of spirituality. They thought it was a sign of inebriation. So was what the Corinthians doing in Corinth, in the church, were these languages that they were using that they called angelic languages or spirit languages, were they actually speaking in tongues? According to the Word of God, they were not, because they were not a sign to unbelievers. And it looked to the outsider like childishness. Remember, we're supposed to be called to be infantile in sin, not in the way that we speak. But these, these tongues sounded like childishness to them, it was chaos. And I've seen this firsthand. Uh, when I was involved with college ministry, when I was going to uh, Cal Poly and St. Louis Obispo, we had a huge Campus Crusade for Christ group there. It was very uh, dedicated to reaching people on campus for Christ. It was a really good place for me to grow. Now, several of those students that were involved with Campus Crusade for Christ were going to a charismatic church called the Vineyard. And they were always encouraging us, hey, you should come to our evening service. It's called the Burn. You, you wouldn't believe how passionate people are for the Lord there. And so... We went and we visited the burn service one night. And we came in and the music was going. I think we were like four or five minutes late. And before ten minutes were up, people were falling on their faces in the middle of the aisles and shaking. They were speaking out in tongues that no one could understand. There wasn't an interpreter anywhere. But there were all these ecstatic expressions which they, I think, in their hearts believed were spiritual. But for me on the outside, as a believer in Christ, a dedicated follower of Christ made me feel extremely uncomfortable. I didn't know what to think of these languages. And they weren't being explained. It felt like a performance. And I remember what I didn't have my mind on that night was the scripture or the Savior that I had come to worship. What I constantly had my mind on was the next person who fell over on me that I had to catch to keep from falling to the ground. And the, the loud stuff that was coming from behind me that I couldn't understand and I couldn't hear the preaching over. That's what I... I was focused on was this this interference that kept me from hearing the prophesying of the true word, the true preaching of Christ. But more than the negative impression that it could leave, tongues would fail to leave the positive impression that the gospel spoken in clarity and power could have had on those, those visitors. If the whole congregation was to prophesy, if an outsider were to come and hear prophecy from everybody in the church, now this doesn't mean that they're all preaching a sermon on their own at the same time in confusion. We're going to read a little bit later that that's off limits in the church of God, that we cannot be a people of confusion, that we have to do things orderly. But if the whole of the congregation was focused on the prophecy of the gospel, of the sharing of the testimony of truth as it had impacted their lives, on the sharing of scripture with other people, then what kind of an impact could that make? We see here that it doesn't say if the preacher prophesies, does it? It says, if all prophesy. Now that's an interesting distinction. The gospel should not only be on the preacher's lips at your church. Think about that for a second, friends. The gospel should be on your lips. You should be affirming what is preached. You should be sharing what God has given to you in the word that way. You should be quick and eager to talk to each other about the ways that you're growing or the ways that you're failing to grow and that you need to grow. You should be willing to come alongside each other and encourage and counsel and to point each other continually to Christ. That's something we all do together. If the whole congregation is to prophesy, it doesn't mean that it's just one big swell of noise, but it means that consistently, when a visitor comes in, I hope that the greeter they talk to, let's point him to Jesus. I hope that the person that they get to know, oh, I knew you from before. We, we used to work out at the same gym. But eventually that conversation comes to Christ. How long have you been thinking about Christ? What brought you here today? Do you have a background in the church? Were you going to a church before you came to this one? These are all things that help us to learn more about each other's spiritual condition. And it helps us to have an open door to prophesy the truth to one another. So we see that prophecy is not just for the pastor. The Great Commission is not just for your elders here at church. It is for the church. And so when people enter here for the first time and they get to know you, are they hearing, hi, it's good to meet you. Wow, this weather is crazy, right? I hope you have a great time and you sit down. Or are they just hearing about sports or whatever entertainment caught your eye this weekend? Are they just hearing about politics and your stance on political things? Or are you going to bring those conversations to what really matters, to Christ? So you have a charge here in the sermon today to be a prophetic people. Be people that want to speak the word of the Lord God to one another. Now, some people are going to point, I want to clarify something. Some people point to verse 23 and they say, look, the real problem isn't that the Corinthians were speaking in tongues. The real problem is that they were all speaking in tongues, right? They were just all speaking in tongues together. That's what was confusing. That was the real problem. And I'll even give them that if they agree to look at tongues as a biblical expression of truth. To the outsider, which means it cannot be an angelic language. It cannot be gibberish. It has to be a true language. And Paul's going to clarify that next week as we talk about some boundaries that he puts around the tongues. He doesn't completely uh, put tongues off limits in chapter 14 here. He doesn't. He doesn't say that tongues are done. We never speak in tongues again. He says, if we're going to speak in tongues, we're going to do it the biblical way. And we're going to do it orderly. And you better have an interpreter because that's what those tongues are supposed to be for. For the proclamation of the truth in ways that those who otherwise would not be able to hear it could hear it. The interpretation uh, uh, or the idea that the word all means that we can speak in tongues, in angelic languages, as long as we're not all doing it at the same time. If that's as far as you go, you're ignoring the true proclamation of the word here, which means that these tongues are for the outsider. They're not for us to build us up or make us think we're really saved. They're for the person who needs the gospel. When the truth is proclaimed in a way that can be understood, then the Lord may very well use that as a means by which the outsider becomes a part of the new covenant. Paul's not saying here that there's a magic formula for converting the unbeliever into a believer. We're not saying that people will always get saved. Or that we should see conversion every week even at our church. There are several conditions here, right? It says if, and then it lists some some necessary conditions for conversion if they all come together to prophesy, in other words, if a new believer comes in and they hear everyone's pointing to Christ and they're talking the truth and they're helping people to see the scripture, then if that visitor, that outsider is convicted by all, meaning the things that they hear, they understand it and it makes them think more clearly about their sin, makes them to see that it's an offense to God. It says, if he is called to account by all, in other words, there's exhortation in that prophesying. It's not just God is good, but what are you going to do with that? You know they are challenged to respond to that truth with a repentant heart and with faith. If the secrets of his heart are disclosed, in other words, if the Spirit is doing that work inside that you and I can't do, if the Spirit is awakening a dead heart and making it alive, then then you might see that result of someone falling on his face, not shaking in an ecstatic way because he's overcome with the Spirit, but falling on his face because he's worshiping God and declaring that God is really among you. He sees the truth and he's testifying. The Holy Spirit is saying amen to the things that the church is saying. And here's why I mentioned earlier that this is a tricky kind of distinction, that tongues are for unbelievers and prophecy is for believers because if someone hears the prophetic word and they understand it and they are convicted in this way and the Spirit is at work, they transform in that moment even from unbeliever unbeliever to believer, from outsider to brother or sister, there's a transformation that happens in their lives. When an individual can see that their sin is real, that their sin is serious, that they have broken the laws of a holy God who deserves true worship, who deserves absolute obedience, this God who keeps us alive and puts breath in our lungs. When the outsider sees that and they begin to recognize that, man, when I lied, I don't lie just against my neighbor, I lied against God because he's the governor of truth. When I stole, I didn't just steal from work, a few supplies here and there. I was stealing from the Lord God because he is the governor of truth and he knows what is right and what is wrong and I'm to trust in him for my provision. When I, when I was immoral in the way that I thought, when I was hateful towards my neighbor, I wasn't just hurting people, I was offending God. When that, when that heart begins to feel the weight of offending the living God and they begin to see, this is, this is more than I can overcome. I don't know that there's anything good that I can do that can erase what I've done wrong. I don't think if any of my good works could ever cancel this out. When that reality begins to sink in and they begin to feel that desperation that the judgment of God is upon me unless I change, unless I repent, unless, unless God himself saved me, I'm doomed. And when that individual hears the sweet words of the gospel that Christ as a gift will save you, as a gift will take you just as you are and turn you into something totally different. The Holy Spirit working in that person's heart can make them come to spiritual life for the very first time. And they transform. They are no longer outside the covenant. They have come into it. They are in Christ now. They might not know everything. They might be confused about a lot, but they know that they're a sinner. They know that Christ is the Son of God come to earth to fulfill the law and to keep it perfectly and to die in the place of sinners like us. And they they can confess with their mouth that, that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's what they need to know to be saved. God will continue that process going forward. He'll bring greater clarity. He will use that prophecy to edify them, to mature them. They will become less and less like a spiritual infant and more and more like a mature man or woman of Christ the longer they walk in the truth and stay connected to the church, the body of Christ, and God uses that to to raise them up and to grow them. So we might not see that every week in, in, in somebody who comes to hear the gospel from us, but we must expect to see that, church. When we preach the truth and live according to it, we should expect that from time to time God is going to bring that kind of revolutionary, radical salvation to the life of one who is coming to see who this Jesus is all about. And when that happens, we need to be ready for it. We need to be ready to encourage that individual to challenge them and, and to warn them because life gets hard when you trust in Christ. When you put your hope in Jesus Christ, then all the things that are against Christ in your life are going to suddenly turn and look at you like an enemy. So we got to we got to we got to prepare people for that. We got to encourage them in the truth. We got to help them to understand that this doesn't mean you're totally sinless right now. You're still going to sin from time to time. You're going to fall into struggles, but it means that you are justified. God sees you with the righteousness of Christ because you're trusting in the work that he did. So we must be ready for these things, friend, because prophecy is a sign to believers, not to unbelievers. But prophecy, when it is understood and the Spirit is working, is also the means by which the unbeliever may become a believer. In closing, I want to address one final consideration. What should the true aim of Sunday morning services be? Because I think there's a a, a real big theme that Paul's going to be resting on, especially next week as we get into the regulative principle of worship here. What is the Sunday morning worship supposed to be about? We've seen today that the Great Commission is foundational to all that the church does. But does that mean that Sunday morning and the gathering of the saints for worship on the Lord's Day is to be a time primarily for evangelism of the lost? This is a Southern Baptist church, and some of you who grew up in the Southern Baptist tradition might heartily say, yes, that's what it's supposed to be about. But let's think about this biblically for a minute and not just in our tradition. Modern evangelical Christianity has widely embraced this idea that Sunday morning is about bringing in visitors and seeing them saved. The thought process is that if the Great Commission is at the heart of all we do, then the aim of the church is to grow and to do whatever it takes to see that happen. But when this approach is embraced, this idea that Sunday morning needs to be focused on and tailored to the non-believer who comes in to seek after Christ, things inevitably change, not for the better, but for the worse. Let me explain why. If our whole goal here is to accommodate the non-believer on a Sunday morning, that's going to drastically affect the preaching, isn't it? The preaching becomes geared towards those who have almost no knowledge of Scripture, that means we don't use spiritual language here. We don't use words of a technical nature that carry weight and history to them because those newcomers probably don't know what those words mean. They don't know what justification means. They don't might even know what repentance means, right? So if we gear everything here to the non-believer, then it's going to make us dumb down our, our, our language quite a bit. We're not going to be able to be accurate about things. That means that you can't draw too heavily on the history of God's interaction with His people because those folks don't yet know the history of the covenant probably. Or if they do, they're real confused. It's vague to them. Sometimes that means that you have to practically abandon the Old Testament for the sake of simplicity. The preaching that resonates with non-spiritual people the most is preaching that talks about practical application. So the preaching is going to end up dealing much more with what you do than it's going to end up being focused on the holiness and the, the uniqueness of God himself. It's going to be practical. It's not going to be about the supernatural, the the divine. When you focus your Sunday morning on the lost person, then special care is taken to not let church become something that would make the outsider feel uncomfortable or maybe experience too much conviction. Otherwise, they might not come back, right? Otherwise, they might get the impression that the church is trying to manipulate them or control them. And that inevitably means that a greater emphasis is placed on the blessings of belief, the good things that come from believing in God, than on the critical reasons that we have to repent and to trust in Jesus Christ. Continue to think about this. Communion on a Sunday morning doesn't make sense if the whole aim of church on Sunday morning is to cater to the unbeliever. It doesn't make sense for us to bring these holy elements out that they can't participate in and tell them, look, this this is a big symbol, but you know but you can't have any of this yet. You can't be a part of this table because you're not yet inside of the covenant. So then communion gets pushed off of Sunday. When Sunday mornings focus more on, on evangelism, more on reaching the outsider, then the music begins to take on the nature and the tenure of the most popular music that is embraced by the culture in that, in that era. And then you got problems because what happens when the culture changes? And the church gets used to that pop. And then the next pop doesn't look like the old pop. And then people want to hang on to the cultural aspect of things. Who are you really trying to reach? Then your target audience gets narrower and narrower. You see all these, these complications that come when your Sunday morning is primarily evangelistic in nature. One more thing. The, the whole come-as-you-are mentality, which has a good side to it, it can take a bit of the importance out of the worship of God. If we're all just, you know, just come in your flip-flops, you can roll in, in your PJs, no big deal. That's good to welcome people in, and we shouldn't be judging people on what they wear. But when you treat the service of God with such casual attitudes, you tend to treat God with casual attitudes too. I think we should begin to grow towards wanting to honor God with our best so that, you know, you go to a wedding, you get dressed up really nicely, right? You wouldn't dream of wearing your PJs to a wedding because you want to honor the people that are there. And how much more are we to honor the Lord God? It's not to say that we all have to have a tie and a jacket on, or that a lady's got to wear a real formal dress. But when we make church real casual so anyone can come and it just don't worry about it, we're all just going to dress in t-shirts, then that holiness of drawing near the Lord God it loses some of its impact on us. So think about this, friends. Is the aim of the Great Commission truly the salvation of the lost? Or is the true core of the great commission the exaltation of God through the salvation of the lost? What are we really trying to accomplish on a Sunday morning? It's more than just bringing more people in here and growing a church. It's the glory of God. And we should not be satisfied with our church until we are glorifying God, until He is the pinnacle of what we do here, until He's the focus, until He gets our attention and our praise and our adoration pours forth to Him. Now there are practical things that flow out of that. If you want to glorify God, obey His commands and conform your life to His Scripture. But don't think that church should ever just be about practical, do this and don't do that. If you're just here for a little advice on life, you're missing the point. God is bigger than that. Praise God for His greatness and His goodness. And so Sunday morning must ever be His, not ours, not the lost's. It is His. And I tell you this, if you preach the truth and you worship God sincerely from the heart, you bring a non-believer in here and if the Spirit is working, they're not going to be like, no, this isn't my style of music and they're going to walk out. If the Spirit is working, they're going to stop And they're going to pause and they're going to think, this is different. This is different than the lostness I have been drudging through my whole life. This is different than the whole world catering to my needs in a consumeristic way. This is a people who have become humble and their focus isn't on themselves. It's on Jesus Christ And they might not get it at first, but they're going to know they walked into a holy moment. They're going to know they're there for something bigger than man. And we pray that they'll keep coming back. And maybe that conviction's too hard for them, and they walk out and they don't come back, but they'll have heard that gospel. And maybe somebody else preaches it to them after they've gone through some more life experiences and God has woken them up to, to more of their depravity. And maybe at that point, they'll remember what they saw here. And they'll remember the reality of true worship of the living God. And you pray that God will use that moment to change that individual's life. But if they come in here and all they get is whatever you want, we're going to give it to you. Then you have become Walmart. You have not become the church. (laughs) And maybe not even Walmart anymore. You become Amazon. We'll even bring it to your doorstep. You don't even have to leave your couch. We'll We'll just pump it out into the airwaves, right? This is church. We don't come here for us. We come here for Christ. And if he's glorified and you experience the joy of the Lord. Pray with me. God, we thank you for your truth, and we ask that as we order our lives and hearts around it, that we would not be so brash and arrogant as to think that we can come and make some sort of a deal with you, Lord God, that as long as you make Christianity something that we like and that fits our sensibilities and matches our desires, that we'll say yes to you. That is not church, Lord. You meet us where we are at. We are depraved people. We are sinners. We're broken and we're powerless to overcome our condition. But you enter into that. When you sent your son, Jesus Christ, he was born into that mess because you knew that was how you would redeem your people. And so I pray, Lord God, that as we come together here, we don't come to try to twist your arm and to make you into something that would be more in line with what what we think you should be. But rather we would come with reverent hearts, struck with awe and wonder, wanting to know more about who you are and what you have to show us, Lord God. So I pray, Father, that as this prophetic word is preached and as we receive it, that the Spirit would be working in us to to think carefully about what we do on Sunday mornings, not just the mornings, God, on the whole day as we worship you in the evenings, as we go home and talk about these things with our kids, as we profess them to our neighbors, Lord God. Let us be after your heart, God, a people after your heart. We thank you for Christ and for the joy that we have in him. May he be exalted and glorified in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.